Hear the word of God from chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out uh, to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit on it. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And this is the day we celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Oh my gosh. 
I made a joke earlier today that if I, I wish there was a table on stage so I could flip it during my sermon. It was a joke. I wasn't really planning on flipping. And I also made a joke about having a fig tree on stage so I can curse it. So, yeah, don't make jokes in front of Danny anymore. So, but if I do flip it now, I mean, if it falls out, I might do like a WWE kind of thing on it now. Today we're talking about Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and I preached this sermon many times before. As a matter of fact, if you guys want to go back and listen to Palm Sunday's sermon I preached on this, we talked about Jesus going in and out, actually, of the city three times. Do you guys actually know that? In this Palm Sunday, like, he actually goes in and out of Jerusalem. And so we talked about how that could lead to and point to the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king of Jesus. So I recommend you guys going back to listen to that sermon if you want a traditional Palm Sunday sermon. Today, I want to focus on a lesser-known, somewhat controversial passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about the cursing of the fig tree and the flipping over of tables. So again, now we have illustrations for you. So we're in Mark chapter 11. If you guys are already there, you can hopefully have your Bibles open to it already. And this story begins with the cursing of a fig tree that's been a kind of a source of critical assessments of Jesus. Um, scholars have really kind of, many scholars wanted to throw this story out. Some scholars didn't know how to handle this. This is a difficult passage of scripture. For some, this story made Jesus look like a petulant child who didn't get what he wanted, so he cursed a fig tree. You know, for some people, when they first glance, when they read this story, they think, he's like my son Hudson, who didn't get what he wants, so he just pouts and says, nothing is good. That's my Hudson, by the way. My son Hudson is six years old, he has everything you could ever imagine you wanted for a toy or for food or whatever. But if he doesn't get something that he wants, it's like the end of the world. Which I don't understand. He literally has a million different toys, but then he had this one thing. True story. He made this little toy out of a plastic cup and a balloon. Right? And it's really cool, actually, the idea where you can use a balloon to, to attach it to the end of the cup and you can shoot stuff out of it. Anybody? I thought it was awesome. He broke it. It was really easy to make, but he broke it. Man, you would have thought he lost the most precious thing in the world to him. Nothing is good in life. That's the word he uses. <laughs> Nothing is good in life. So dramatic. I don't know where he gets these words from, but he's just an overly dramatic guy. As a matter of fact, Megan Klingler, who's a children's minister, she lives downstairs and she's getting married and she's moving out. And he goes up to Megan and goes, Megan, are you moving? And Megan goes, yeah, yeah, I'm moving out, I'm getting married. And he goes, you're ruining our family. <laughs> It's just a dramatic kid. And, and honestly, this, this passage of scripture, it just seems like Jesus is being really overdramatic here. I mean, the fig tree doesn't have fruit because it wasn't even in season, and he curses it. And it seems like he's being a petulant child. And so you have to ask yourself, is that what's happening in this story? Is he being a petulant child? Is he being upset? Is he, is he being angry over something? What's going on here? Now, Jesus doesn't look or sound like a petulant child anywhere else in all of scripture. So how do we interpret this passage? Let's give it a try. In this passage, it looks as though Jesus is, uh, Jesus is coming back from Bethany on Monday morning. So he goes in, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, then he leaves. He, I love how it says this in the book of Mark. You heard it read. He says he looked around. So he's noticed that, right? Oh, he's noticed that. He looked around, then he left, went to Bethany, and he's coming back. He's overtaken with pegs of hunger, and he sees his fig tree. We don't know the size of the tree, they can grow to be pretty large size, 10 feet, 12 feet, even 15 feet. It's Passover time, so that makes it about late March, early April. 
and the tree is full of leaves, and there should be an expectation that there might be some early figs. Now, figs didn't come into season until late August, September. This makes me sound like I'm a like, hardcore like, gardener, fig tree expert. I did some research. I don't normally know this stuff. I do have a fig tree in my house, though, by the way, in my backyard, yeah. No figs on it, in case you were wondering. But that's when you would pick figs. You pick figs in August, September, and they grow, and they kind of develop their shape during the winter. Then during the spring, they'd grow, summer they'd get bigger, then you'd eat it, pick it, during August and September. At least if you pick it around mid-May or late May, there might be something edible. I mean, the fruit's already there, it should be there. It's been growing all throughout the winter. And if you picked it in May, it should be somewhat edible, still not good. The sweetness would come typically August, September. Some commentators would say that there, there were possibly some fig tree, fig fruit that you could eat, but the reality is you wouldn't typically eat it at this time. But there would be the fruit what you would see that would become later the fig that you would want to eat. Jesus is fully aware of the life cycle of a fig. Figs were common trees. He knows when they're sweet to eat. He wasn't taken by surprise. He decided instead to use this tree at this time to make a point that would capture the attention of everybody listening and needs to capture our attention today. I want us to look at three lines of thought, and let's take it along the journey itself, the journey into Jerusalem, the visit to the temple, and the journey back the next day as we look into what Jesus did. So first, as we look into the journey into Jerusalem, on the first place along this road from Bethany, which I said is two miles out of Jerusalem, he's hungry. And he comes across this, this, this fig tree. And I love this, guys. All, all preachers know the best illustrations that you can come up with are the ones that come from your own life experience, right? Those are the best ones. So for me, like, every time my sons do something, I'm like, oh, that's going to be a sermon illustration, which I feel really bad for them. Right now, they don't get it. But like a few years from now, I'm going to be like, seriously, Dad, another one? So I feel bad for that prematurely. Not, not bad enough where I won't do it. I'll still do it. Because the best illustrations are the stuff that comes from life, isn't it? And so here's Jesus walking through, and mind you, he's already been into the temple. He already saw what was going on. And he's walking back to the temple, right? And he sees his fig tree, and he says this. This is the perfect example of what I'm talking about. This is the example of what's happening in the temple. This, in real life, something practical, something tangible, something that my people can understand, I will use this to illustrate a point, right? A valuable teaching. Well, that's what good teachers do, right? They take these moments in life and use that to teach valuable lessons for us. Together with the olive and the vine, the fig tree is employed in the Old Testament over and over again by great prophets. Isaiah, Hosea, they all use the fig tree as symbolic and as depicting the nation of Israel. And just as Israel is called a vine, she's also referred to as a fig tree. It's more likely the fig tree that was in the Garden of Eden, not an apple tree. That was the, garden, the tree of the fruit of knowledge that they weren't supposed to eat from, right? When we picture the fruit that like you don't want to eat, what do you guys picture typically? A delicious apple, typically, right? What? Pomegranate, maybe, yeah? But I'm going to say most Westerners in America picture an apple. <laughs> it's true, it's true. I'm just saying, most do. But it's more likely, if anything, it's probably a fig tree or something like that, most likely. What type of leaf did they cover themselves up with when they discovered they were naked? The fig tree. It was a fig tree. That's what they used to cover. So most likely, it, it was a fig tree that was part of the, possibly the tree. Fig tree was used all throughout the Old Testament to symbolize Israel. And Israel, just like this fig tree, sprouting leaves but bearing no fruit. That's what was happening. 
Jesus saw the temple. Jesus saw, he knew what he was about to do. His, his flipping over the temple, I don't think was, I don't think it was a spontaneous act in that moment of, of anger. He saw the temple, I love that. In Mark, he specifically said, he went and he looked around and he came back. It was a premeditated action by Jesus. And so he sees his fig tree bearing no fruit. He says, this is it. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel's been called the fig tree. And here's a fig tree that's bearing no fruit. What should the fruit should the Israelites been bearing? The fruit Abraham was promised to be a blessing of all nations. And do you get this? Israel was supposed to be a nation that knew God. They were to live differently. They were to enact justice and mercy. They were to be a, a nation that followed God, worshipped him, and looked different, set apart, holy. So to all the other nations, they could be blessed by them. All the other nations could receive, like, what do you have that's different? Your code of justice is different. Your mercy is different. The way you treat each other is different. So then they all say, what do you have? And they can say, we, well, we have God. He's our king. But that's not what they were doing. The Israelites were not doing that. They weren't bearing fruit. Jesus is calling out the nation for not being what they were supposed to be. And this timing of this, fig sto- this story is so perfect. You see, Jesus curses the fig tree just a day after he's welcomed in as Messiah into the streets of Jerusalem. This is right before the flipping of the tables. Jesus wasn't responding in uncontrolled anger. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was calling out the people for showing the possibility, having the promise of something, but in reality being dead. In reality bearing no fruit. You know, one thing that drives me mad, I'll be honest with you guys, is when I go to a gas station and I walk in and I grab an ice cold Coke Zero. I'm so pumped. I'm, it's cold to my touch, I can't wait to drink it. And I open it up and I taste it and it's flat and stale. Oh man, I get so angry. It breaks my heart, it does. I'm just gonna be honest, it really gets me. I mean, it looks so good. Had a little bit of condensation on it after you walked out with it, being in the cold fridge, and you're like, this is going to taste so good. It's so much promise. But it tasted terrible. I got angry. I'll admit that. In my sin. I know it's a silly example. But I want you to hear the heart of Jesus here. This is an intentional, acted parable of what Jesus is not thinking of Israel. It's a prelude to what Jesus will actually do to the temple. He curses it and eventually gets destroyed. These are the ones who are to eagerly wait for and look for the Messiah. The ones that were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. The ones that were supposed to welcome in, live differently, be different. To show them who God is. Yet when the Messiah comes, he's rejected. And when he comes and sees what they're doing in the temple place, they're robbing. We'll see that as we travel to the temple here. We follow Jesus and the disciples as they move from the Mount of Olives region down to the valley, up into Mount Zion, to the very entrance of the temple. And this is the third temple. There was Solomon's temple, you remember, and there came a temple that was built in the time of Haggai and others, the Zerubbabel temple, which existed for about 500 years. And that was, kind of, was in a period just before Jesus was born in a state of disrepair. Then Herod the Great, who died in 4 BC, began this huge building project to construct the temple like, it, like it's never been before, like a gigantic scale. Now, the size and dimension of Herod's temple are impressive. The temple was made up of four distinct parts. The outer part was the court of the Gentiles, and it measured around 500 by 325 yards. So you can picture that, 500 to 325 yards. Enormous piece of ground. It's surrounded by columns that were 35 feet high. According to Josephus, it would take three men holding their hands together in order to circle each of these columns. 
standing freely within this court were three other divisions of the temple, the court of women, the court of Israel, into which only the circumcised Jews could go into, and then, of course, the Holy of Holies. That's where the high priest could go only once a year, and that's after all the ceremonial, ritual stuff was done that was mentioned in the Old Testament. So in this large, expansive people, or large, expansive land, there were throngs of people would gather. Remember, this is Passover, Okay. So many scholars believe that there could be somewhere in the region maybe even up to 2 million people or more coming into this city. Every male of 20 years and older were required to pay the price of Passover, the shekel price, do this offering. They would have to bring ceremonial sacrificial lambs for the slaughter. Josephus said in AD 66 that over 255,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover. So, much easier of course, to bring money to the outer courts of the temple, or much easier um, to go to, to, than bringing your own lamb. If you're, remember, there was the diaspora, so the Jews were scattered all over the place, all over the Roman Empire. And so you'd come and you'd offer your sacrifice, but much easier than carrying with you a lamb all this journey, because while you carry it with you, it might get defected, it might get marked, it might get scarred, which would make it not worth having as a sacrifice, right? So what would be the easier thing to do? Buy the lamb there. Yes, yeah. bring your money, bring your credit card, and be like, ceremonial offering, perfect, got it, right? And you get your lamb, and so you had these merchants, you had all these people there who were ready to sell you your religious obligation. So let's say you did. You traveled all this way. Let's say you came from Antioch, or you came from Rome, and here you are, you're in Jerusalem, and you're here to offer your sacrifice, but you didn't bring an animal with you because it's, it's hard. It's a long journey. You don't know what's going to happen to the animal. So you get to the temple and you're like, okay, now I have to have an animal. This is required. This is religious obligation. I have to offer up a sacrifice. So you go to the merchants. And what do they do? I got what you need. But you got to pay for it. Right? Oh, I got what you need. But, you know, you have to pay a lot for it because you're desperate. I'm not. Does that make sense? You follow me so far. You guys with me how this is working out, right? Think of the price gouging, the theft, the cheating. These merchants can charge whatever they want because there's a religious obligation. They can charge double, triple, quadruple, a million times over because this is, there's no alternative. Imagine food and drinks at Disney. You know what I'm saying? It's like you're trapped. You paid the price to get in the, 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 the amusement park. You know, you're in. You, you, pay, you gotta pay whatever because you gotta eat. You gotta drink. So you're like, oh my gosh, that drink costs $20. Oh. That's what it's like. It's, it's like going to Disney and they have you. Darn Disney. <sighs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm the guy who buys the Cokes here at Disney too. Oh, it's terrible. But they have you, so you're stuck. And then, then, then on top of that, there's the shekel, the money. The half shekel has to be paid for every male 30 years and older. For example, um, uh, Crestes, the scholar, says that when Jerusalem was ransacked in the middle of the first century, he said he took the equivalent of today's currency of $10 million from the temple. There were people who had to give money as their offering as well. But here's the thing, the, the money had to be exchanged. Why would the money have to be exchanged? Because you couldn't use Roman currency. Most of the people were using Roman currency at the time, but it had to be exchanged because it had on, on the currency the image of the emperor, which was idolatrous. So you had to exchange your Roman currency for Tyrian coinage or other kind of coinage that was acceptable. Well, that's another chance. Oh, you only have Roman currency. Oh, well, if you give Roman currency, that's, you, that's idolatry. You're going to go to hell. You better exchange money with me. And I'll, I'll do you a favor. I'll prevent you from going to hell. I'll only charge you this amount. 
Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? You see what's happening here? There's buying and selling. There's, there's price gouging. There's, there's basically these people are being taken advantage of over and over and over again. But by whom? Who's taking advantage of them? The Jewish people. The people who live there. The people who are from Jerusalem. The people who get to be around the temple all the time. The people who know the law. The people who are called to be a blessing to the diaspora. The people who are called a blessing to all the nations. They're taking advantage of the nations. Of everybody else. And so Jesus comes in and he sees it. And he's looked in the first day. They're all waving him as king. He's saying, Messiah, Messiah, deliver us, deliver us. And he's watching and he's looking. And he sees what's actually happening, what the people are actually doing. And he goes back out to Bethany. And he comes back in. And on his way back in, he says, this tree has no fruit. Curse it. And he goes in and sees the den of robbers. And he gets angry. He's really angry. And he, I'm about to do it. He flips over a table. Now, mind you, this is a huge place. We don't know how large a scale this is. He, I mean, you got to think there's bazillion tables. Bazillion is not an exact number. But there's a lot of tables. There's a large area. And so is he in just one corner making a scene in one place? Is he really even much of a scene? We don't know. If it was a huge scene, maybe the Roman soldiers would have got involved. We don't know. But we do know that wherever he was at, he caused a scene. And he flipped over the temple and he's quoting Isaiah 56 where he says, this house, this place was meant to be a house of prayer. But you made it to a den of robbers. That was the purpose of the outer court of the temple. It was to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, for those who are seeking the true faith. They could come at least to the outer courts of the temple and they're engaged in reverent, in a sense of the presence of God, to bow their knees, to engage in prayer, to say there's something different amongst the Israelites. They have a God that I want to know about. But instead they made it to a mall, worse than a mall. They made it to a place of theft and robbery. The temple is desecrated. The holiness, the, the, the holiness is made a mockery of. I heard it, one, one scholar said this, the lamb bears his teeth. People like to focus on the fact that Jesus got angry. Please hear me very well. Je yes, Jesus got angry, but hear more what made him angry. Don't focus more on the fact that Jesus got angry. Focus more on the fact what made him angry. I believe he was angry for two main reasons. Number one, the holiness of God was attacked and desecrated. And number two, people were taken advantage of. People that should not have been. They were taken advantage of by people who were supposed to know better. The people who were supposed to help and to love and to serve were taking advantage of other people. A lot of people don't miss this. I have a fear that some of the ways the modern church is going is in this direction. I fear that the church in many places has lost its sense of worship, dignity, and reverence for God. And instead we've replaced it with entertainment, commercialization, and just man-pleasing. Please hear me well. This is not me attacking other churches. This is a warning for us today. This is not me calling out any other church. This is just for us today. A warning for us. Believe me when I say it is so easy to fall into the practice of pleasing man. It's so easy to fall into the practice of doing what's simple, doing what's popular, rather than doing what's worthy of worship and holy to God. Let the true temptation to only say things that everyone wants to hear, never speak a word of judgment, 
Never speak a word of truth that needs to be heard. My people, may we as a people who know God not be like this. May we always choose to acknowledge the holiness and the goodness and the worthiness, the the beauty and the majesty and the righteousness. May God and who he is be the most important thing to us. Not whether or not we're just accepted by everybody. Does that make sense? And may we not take advantage of people in desperate straits. One of the saddest things that I hear is when the church or people in the church take advantage of children, take advantage of people who are lost, take advantage of emotional and situations where the people who are supposed to be counseling and loving others well hurt others. And I say this as a pastor that Man, when I hear about stuff like that, it absolutely wrecks my heart. And it it wrecks me that it's so prevalent. It wrecks me that I'm sure there's people in this room right now who've been hurt by the church, who've been hurt by greedy, selfish, power-hungry people. And I want to say first and foremost that We don't want to be a place like that, but we have to acknowledge that we're sinful people, all of us. And so our only prayer, our only answer to not becoming like that is to say, how do we we not be a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit? This is a warning that Jesus gives us, that if we think we're beyond that, we think we're so much better than that, then we'll go this way. But if we listen to the warning and the words of Jesus, may we never become like that. And for those of you who are here today and you've been hurt, You've been wounded. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you've been hurt and wounded by people and places that should know better and that was meant to protect the vulnerable. But I also want you to know that Jesus hated that too. I want you to know that he was angry, that he flipped tables, that he cursed a tree, and he's pushing for, showing for, calling for us to be different. Amen? Amen. Now, he's going back. He flipped the tables over, made a scene, caused a scene, said this place has become a den for robbers. And he's going back to Bethany. On his way back, they're leaving out the city. And as they're passing along, Jesus and his disciples, they pass by this tree again. And this tree is described as withering away. And just an interesting aside here on the remark in verse 21, it's actually Peter who says something, right? He said, remember Peter's one that says, look, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered, right? I love that that little bit of information is put in there because Peter is often thought of as kind of the mouthpiece for the book of Mark. You know, like the book of Mark is often thought of as something that Peter kind of, like he was like the writer for Peter as the one who wrote it. And so that little tidbit of information is kind of put in there because Peter, as he's speaking, hey, I noticed the fig tree. You know? So I noticed the fig tree was with her. So I said, Jesus, look at the fig tree. Which I feel like that's so Peter. Not anybody? You guys ever do that with like, with like Bible characters ever? People? I, I do that. You know, like you ever like TV shows or like that you watch in movies like that's so that person. Like that's so like Rachel from Friends or whatever it might be, you know? I sometimes in my mind I'm like that's so Paul. You know? That's so David. You know? Okay. That's just me. 
a little bit of a Bible nerd. But I love that, that Peter looks and he notices that the fig tree is there. He notices it's withered. He's like, whoa, Jesus, you cursed that fig tree. Look, it's withered. Now, why is that even there? Why does, is this journey back, random journey back, and pointing out that the fig tree is withered, even mentioned? It has to have importance. It has to have significance. Because there's something deeply significant here. This isn't a casual remark. Jesus didn't do this in spite, uh, in spite, didn't curse his fig tree, didn't wither its roots because he was spiteful over a tree. He's teaching a very profound lesson. Earlier, Jesus, in driving out the money changers and overturning the tables, he's actually preventing sacrifices from taking place. Because the whole ritual of Passover cannot take place for worshipers without this happening. Without merchandise. That literally says merchandise wouldn't be passed, couldn't be passed through because of what Jesus did. And it's as though Jesus is pronouncing now a curse, or at least the beginning of the end of the very temple sacrifices. As though this is kind of an enacted parable for what will actually become true. That the days of the temple and the days of sacrifices of lambs and of the blood that is slain on these altars, that those days are numbered because true Israel has come. The true sacrifice is here and the Lamb of God is about to be slain. You remember how earlier... In John's earlier account, there, there may well have been two cleansings of the temple. John talks about earlier in his account, there's a cleansing of the temple. And John has a similar account happening in the second chapter in John's gospel. And he says, Jesus says in that account, he says, I will destroy this temple in three days, build it up again. The Israelites never forgot that. The people, the, the Jewish leaders never forgot that Jesus said that. Even at his trial that was brought up against Jesus, he was called an insurrectionist. He, was, he said that his mission was to destroy the temple. That's what they accused him of. They said, he's going to destroy the temple. He's going to destroy the temple. In a sense, that's what he did. My people, here's what Jesus did. In a sense, Jesus abolishes the temple and its worship and enacts something new. So here he is by this fig tree that is now withered from its very roots as though the Israel is it's representing the very act of this temple worship and what Israel is. And he's saying these days are numbered. It's, it's finished now. The true Israel is about to emerge. The Israel which is Christ. The Israel which is Christ's people. Jew and Gentile alike who have faith in God. The Israel of the new kingdom. It's as though Jesus is saying that true religion is approaching God through faith in Jesus. He says in verse 22, now have faith in God. There are some surprising things that are going to happen in the days that are to come. He's going to be nailed to a tree, killed and buried, and rise again. Have faith in God, he's saying to his disciples. Guys, what he's doing here is that he's literally saying with this illustration, this enacted illustration, the long enacted parable, is that the religion of old, the temple worship as you know it, is going to be abolished. And in its place comes the Lamb of God who was slain. A new Israel is born. And he's creating this beautiful image by saying, look at this fig tree. He represents old Israel and its temple ways is withered and dead. He flips over the worship of the temple. He flips over the money changers. And only he has the authority to do that because he's the lamb of God that was slain. And out from it birthed something new. A new covenant paid in the blood of Jesus. Do you see how beautiful this picture is? This is a beautiful enacted parable of what Jesus is doing. It's not a petulant child cursing a fig tree. It's a beautiful illustration that says, this is what's happening. I'm abolishing the old and making all things new. I love that. I love how he closes out this passage in verses 23 to 25 with a call to faith that 
kind of almost doesn't fit here. You know, it's like it doesn't belong to what we just read, but we're giving two examples of the kind of fruit that's evidently missing in the temple courts. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, there are two things that should emerge from you as a consequence of faith. Two fruits. Number one is prayer. I love here, he talks about prayer with great faith. He talks about mountains being taken up and thrown and cast into the sea, about believing prayer. Now, guys, I'm just going to throw this out there. I am not, I don't believe that Jesus is talking about the name it and claim it kind of prayer that says, you know, I believe that God's going to give me the lottery. I believe with all my heart, so God's going to give me the lottery. Do you hear me real quick when I say that? Right? I just want to, I just want to, I just want to throw that out there. I don't believe if I pray with enough faith that God's going to give me a brand new car or give, give me a Mercedes or I don't like cars, so I'll go with something different. He's going to give me, I don't know. Cook zero out of a water fountain always. <laughs> every water fountain I go to, I have the gift of it turns into Coke Zero every single time. If I believe it enough, that's what's gonna happen everywhere I go. Faucets of water Coke Zero. Everywhere. But there's people who struggle with this because what do you do? Jesus literally says, He says, if you believe that the mountains will be cast into the sea, that if you believe it will happen. How do you deal with that? First of all, guys, how many mountains have we seen prayed into the sea? I'm not talking figuratively, I'm talking about literally. I don't think many. I don't think any, but there might be. You might have one instance of it happening, I don't know. <clears throat> so Jesus isn't literal, that's not what he literally means. What is he doing here? Guys, I want you to understand that I believe what Jesus is, is using figurative language to show us the power and the importance of prayer. I don't believe Jesus literally said, guys, why are you not praying for mountains to move to the sea? I don't think God, Jesus wants us to move mountains all the time. I don't think he wants Everest in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Right? I don't think that's what God said. I don't think he's saying have Yoda-like powers to move stuff. What, God, what Jesus is literally saying, he's saying, guys, I want you to understand this, that prayer is powerful. Prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. Prayer is a natural byproduct of faith. Believing prayer believes that God will do amazing things. And this figurative language that he uses is like what I would use when I tell my son, son, I love you so much. Like say, I love you to the moon and back. I don't literally love you to the moon and back because I've never been to the moon and back. Which son, I love you so much. There's nothing that can ever stop me. No power. Well, there are probably forces that can stop me, but it's this language that shows the depth of emotion it's language to show the importance of prayer and how powerful it is. And Jesus literally is saying, he's saying, guys, do you get this? That prayer is so powerful that it can move to actually forgive sins through the work of Jesus. Bigger than any mountain is your sin. And so I love this, this, this idea that, that one of the examples of fruit that we would see, that we would bear, is one, it should lead to prayer. It should lead to this prayer, and here's why, I'll go into that a little bit later, but two, the second consequence that he says is it should lead to a forgiving heart, a willingness to forgive others. That's the kind of fruit that it should bear. If you retain a stubborn, bitter heart, a willingness to forgive others, no matter what they've done to you, then you're just as phony as the rest of them because you don't get what Jesus has done for you. You don't understand grace. Now, here's a topic that I want to talk about is Really quickly, I just want to dive into this really quickly. I'll close with this. Is we're called to bear fruit then. God forbid we're ever like this fig tree. God forbid that as a church we ever do what the Israelites, those who've been given so much that we don't bear fruit. So then the question I want to ask before we close out is how then do you bear fruit? 
How do you bear fruit? Right? I'm going to take a risk here and ask the question to you guys. How do you bear fruit? Say that again. Did you cheat? No. <laughs> In John chapter 15, it says no one can bear fruit unless what? They abide in the vine. You, know, you can bear no fruit. That we're a branch, and if the branch is separated from the vine, we're not a, a, a abiding in the vine, that there's no fruit that's able to be born. So the, the answer to you this morning that I want you to leave you with this is that how do you bear fruit? My people, listen to this, is to abide. Abide with Jesus. What does that mean? What does abide mean? I'm gonna give you a quick, simple little definition. I use this, I don't know where I came up with this. It's just, I read all different things, but this is the way for me it relates to me is do you connect, depend, and remain? That's how you abide. One, you connect. Literally abiding in the vine. If you're a branch and you're not connected to the vine, you're not getting the nutrients from the vine so that you can bear fruit in a kind of horticulturally. You need to be connected. If you're a part, if you're not connected to Jesus, you're not connected to the community, you're not connected to his word, then you're not attached, you're not abiding. You need to be connected. Practically for you, that means are you spending time? Are you praying? Are you connected? Do you know him? Two, do you depend? That's a big word, guys, because here's the deal. To be honest with you guys, Western kind of, our culture now is this idea of like we're so self-sufficient. We don't need anything. We don't need God. You can do whatever you put your mind to. You can accomplish all of it. And this idea of depending on God is really foreign and very difficult for all of us. I struggle with this all the time. Because I like to depend on myself. Because when I depend on myself, I can rely on myself. And when I, you know, I like to depend on myself, I feel like I'm in control. And I like being in control. Even it's fake, even if, even if I know that it's a, kind of an illusion, that fake illusion sometimes still feels good. But to truly abide means you depend. It means you don't rely on your own strengths. It doesn't, it means very, very it is very nature. How to become a Christian is literally this idea of dependence. Jesus said that let the little ones come to me. And not only does he say that the little ones come to me, but we need to have a, a faith like theirs. A childlike faith. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, this idea that what's a childlike faith? It's a faith that utterly depends. It's utterly needy. My people, we need to depend. We need to connect. We need to depend. And we need to remain. One of my favorite things in studying um, Jesus when he comes and talks about, you know, that those who are thirsty come. Those who are hungry come. It's this idea that it's not just come one time. It's a keep on coming. Keep on drinking. Guys, being a Christian isn't a one-time thing. Hear me very well. It's not a one-time I made a decision, so I got fire insurance, I'm good to go. It's a remaining. It's a daily choosing to depend and to walk with. Daily acknowledging your need. Here's what I mean by this, guys. Being married to my wife, it's not just a one-time decision I made when I said I do at the altar. Do you hear me? Being married to what my wife means daily, every day, I choose to remain in her and with her. It's a daily choosing to be her husband. It's remaining in that faithfulness, that covenant promise to each other. It's not a one-time thing. 
Guys, I'm not saying that you need to get saved every day. I'm not saying that you need to pray the prayer of salvation every day. What I'm saying is you choose to remain in the one that you're called to be with. Utterly dependent. So my people, how do we bear fruit? We abide. And by abiding, I mean we connect, we depend, and remain. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy. God, that you would use, even use a cursing of a fig tree and a turning over tables to show your incredible work, this beautiful enacted parable, God, that how you're abolishing what was old and making something new. You're doing something so beautiful. God, we thank you for the work of Jesus that accomplishes this. That no longer are we striving, no longer are we attempting on our own power to earn any favor, to earn salvation, but instead we can just rest, we can abide, we can live in the goodness of your promises and your relationship and accept the free gift of salvation and life eternal with you. God, may we be a people, may we be a church that bears fruit because we abide in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.